welcome to the Female Pilot Club podcast. If you don't know us, we're a plucky band of lumpy jumpers helping female written sitcom scripts take off and fly against the almost insurmountable odds presented by the TV commissioning system. And if you do know us, we're those crazy people at festivals slipping scripts into your bag with read this or die written on the envelope in newspaper cuttings. Actually, we're not really. Well, we never do it again anyway, I promise, Gina, don't worry. I'm Wing Commander Case Donham. Co-piloting today is Emily Chase. Hello there. And our guest is producer Gina Lyons. Welcome, Gina. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. Thank you for having me. No problem. So, after 15 years in comedy entertainment for companies like Graham Norton So TV, Gina moved into scripted comedy, producing the pilot for In My Skin, which won a BAFTA Simra Award for television drama. She then produced the BBC Three pilot for Dreaming Whilst Black, which won creator Ajani Salmon a BAFTA for Emerging Talent and was nominated for an International Emmy. Gina was named as one of the 40 screen practitioners selected to benefit from the Women in Film and Television's Four Nations Mentoring Scheme. And in 2022, she was announced as a BAFTA Elevate Producing Cohort member. That'll do. (laughs) Yeah. For 2022 to 2024. That was a mouthful. That was, yeah. She associate produced the third season of Breeders and is delivering a 10-part comedy series for CBS and Amazon Freeview. A working-class girl who had lunch vouchers at school, Gina is passionate about working with storytellers from diverse backgrounds. She is now developing a slate of comedies, including three comedy feature films. Yeah. Wow. That is I'd really make my life harder and try and do the feature film side as well, which is ridiculous, by the way. You think TV's hard? At least there's one buyer. Yeah, and at least there's sometimes money in TV. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, do, I do not understand any of it. But, you know, stories, that's what I'm into. Uh, and we into. all love a good comedy film, so someone's got to make them. After COVID, I thought, like, you, you know, I think we all did, but where's the laughs at? And um, I want to be like Judy Apatow. That's my little joke. Uh, like Judd <laughs> Apatow, but the lady version. Yes. Um, and... It. Yeah, I think there's some really great writers over here and performers and we should be doing more feature films. I think that's a great aspiration. I love his films. And I I often think, why can't we have those same kind of really witty but excruciatingly embarrassing but watchable, really funny watchable films yeah I mean I watch that's our sort of aspiration I work with a couple of for two of the th- for two of the three films is with the same team and we go by the name Rude Guests and I think that's because they often used to come around my house uninvited to develop stuff um, and that's Ed <laughs> Keir who's a stand-up comedian and actor and uh, and his partner Kringo Williamson and they're writer-director duos and they're very funny so were they like Jehovah's developers? They just kept yeah, knocking, just at kept knocking the door. Yeah, they just kept knocking the door. And I was like, oh, fucking sit down. My dining room table is the place that has birthed a lot of ideas. I had a show with Tez Ilyas and Hamza Rashad, and it all happened around that dining room table. Some of the funniest jokes that we would like be cry laughing as we sort of came up with them. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I've, I've got... Uh, one film that looks like I sort of sold it to a company and that's sort of a £10 million film um, based on something stupid that I did about five years ago. And then um, we've got another one with a very big name, an Oscar-winning actor attached, and that's trying to get film finance and that's painful. But you're not writing them right because it's based on something funny you did, but you weren't tempted to write it yourself. Well, I mean, A, convincing anyone that I can write requires me to, to do it. I don't oh. think I have the... The balls, I think, if I'm honest. I, I've, I've co-created a few shows mm-hmm. um, with a really fantastic writer called Taylor Glenn. And 
she she's brilliant. It's the story producing. It's the coming up with the ideas. It's the characters. That's the thing I'm very good at. Some of my writer friends go, well, you're a writer. You're not a typist. But some others go, well, actually, I couldn't do the script that she's delivered. Or I haven't ever done it. Maybe one day when the kids are older, I'll go to a you know, rural cottage in Wales and find out that I can or can't write. But for now, I just love working with writers and I like that sort of very collaborative process. So me pitching them or they pitch me or really when it's when we're cooking together as opposed to here's a fully fledged idea, have a read. Anyway, on our podcast, we usually ask the writers to do our version of an elevator pitch where they pitch to a commissioner who's hanging on to their legs as they jump out of a burning plane. So fairly standard writer behaviour, obviously, but we won't ask you to do that. Uh, As you've said, you're not a writer, but as a producer, you must do a lot of pitching to commissioners. Yeah, I've I've started to. I I don't like it, if I'm honest. I would like a sort of a big, sort of a big dick energy exec type that goes brilliant, love it. And then they do all the chatting to the channels. It's not my favourite thing, but I have realised I have to do it. So I've done it a few times. And have Um, you got any really great choice like turn downs that you want to share with us? Um, I, I mean, sometimes it's like, we love it, love, 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 not for us. And you go, what? I don't understand. I don't think I ever really get what sort of lands and what doesn't. And especially when you see telly and you go, this landed? But I have had things like, uh, we've got a thing about a mum and a daughter and you go okay okay you know there's a few of those sort of big general things years and years ago um we pitched oh i don't know if i can say yes fuck it but he's gone now he's he's we pitched with the commissioner at a channel and uh they literally said the words black people don't watch this channel and we were like what we were stunned. This, we are going back about 15 years. I think there's, all, there's been some daft things. I've been, when I was in entertainment, I had a commissioner give me a long list of people that she wanted on the show. And then we booked those people and she went, why are these people doing the show? And we were like, well, you literally said these names. I mean, there are the perennial ones that come up there. We had Georgia Pritchett on our show, you know, succession writer. And she always does the great one of saying that every commissioner that she has had a meeting with at some point or other has said... We've got something with a woman in it. So that yeah, one that, that you just genuinely, about, yeah, you know, yeah. mother and daughter, that's that's the new version of that, isn't it? It's just, uh, you know, if you swap it out with a person of colour or it, it just wouldn't, you know, we sort of, I don't know, I think especially, I mean, this is why you guys are here, literally, but women in comedy, it, there's still a way to go. The, the, the imbalance of male to female writers is still shocking. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, so... It's tough. And I think we a lot of the time, the sort of female written stuff can be almost like, well, it's too drama. It's too, you know. No, it's not. It's funny. It's just funny in a different way. Yeah. Um, too drama. Or sometimes, as I've had, uh, it's a comedy drama and then it's too funny. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can't Why win. Why too funny? I, I think, <laughs> and when people are sort of like, you know, whenever we're all seeing it on Twitter of like, oh, calling from accounts, everyone loves it, blah, blah, blah. Any show that's doing well has had a very clear focus of who's the creator and you know jesse armstrong for succession or you know husband and wife for colin from accounts or the three creative team in hacks Mm. let the funny people do the funny thing and that's i'm a big advocate of that and i think a lot of the time people pitch and i well i'm gonna go on for tangent now i don't mean to go on tangent but i think when people pitch like the germs of an idea sometimes a commissioner can think it's one thing the writer thinks it's something else and then you you end up with something that's not Either. Either, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think 
if we if we trust the people that want to tell the story how they want to tell it. Mm-hmm. But you know, one day, and you think that that's not happening. You think that the creators aren't. I think there's some in the rare, rare times that there are. I think there are some amazing commissioners out there and some really talented people, but it does feel like gatekeeping, and and it's it's a bit frustrating when we're all seeing the same things that are going out. Go really that that first episode went through that many people and got drilled that much, and that's what you came out with. You know, but then I also understand that the you know the process is hard, and you'll get a pilot commission. You go into a series; that person's only got X amount of time to write the rest of the five episodes. You know, there's a lot of flaws in our industry. There are some great people in telly, uh, but I do think it's stacked up against uh, women and working class and diverse people. And there's my serious rant. Very good rant, love it. So, just going back to the very beginning um, for a second, how did your career in the comedy industry actually start? Uh, well, I, when I joke and say I'm a competition winner, it's because I literally am. And I've done this on my podcast recently, so I'll try and mix it up and give you something else. But um, I did a chat. I, I used to sign on to the job centre next door to Channel 4. And I used to be like, oh, one day, like, you know, with my little dreams. And then I was reading a magazine. Do you remember them? Like actual magazines. I remember them. And there was a uh, little advert that said, do you think you could be a TV producer? And so I applied. And I thought well, I was going to an interview. And I got to the American church in Tottenham Court Road. There's two and a half thousand people in the queue. And it was ridiculous. And I was like, oh, I'm very much auditioning for a reality TV show. It was made by Princess Productions. Um, but when I arrived to the American church, there was two and a half thousand people there. And it was very evident it was an audition for a reality TV show. And I didn't make the final 12 after like six months of back and forth sort of auditioning. Um, and then someone dropped out on the weekend before and they said, do you want to be on the show? And it was a one-off series for Channel 4, which entertainment wanted, but it ended up being on Channel 4 Education, which was a weird morning slot that they used to do. And it was 12 wannabe TV producers and one winner declared and I won the series. And funny enough, it never came back because it's not interesting watching people make telly. <laughs> um, but good for me because I didn't, I didn't want fame. Like I remember um, Channel 4 Publicity, she was like, you're the only person that's won a reality TV show that doesn't want to go on Richard and Judy. And I was like, yep, yeah, no, I don't want to do any of it. Um, obviously, because I wanted to be a TV producer. That was I was about nineteen or twenty, and I'm pushing forty now, so that was quite a while ago. And so then you, I, you called their bluff about actually wanting to be a TV yeah. producer. That was a bit shocking. She was like, them. "It's so weird." Um, yeah, it was. It was really good experience and fun and silly and you know daft. But I just you know I, I was from Northampton. I didn't know what jobs were and how to get in, and it's it's incredibly hard for people with degrees and that know someone in the business let alone an, an actual idiot with no degree who hasn't. I mean, I did nine months at drama school and then quit. So I was really sort of like, well, I, I said I was on the dole. I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I was I was making stuff for fun. I had a lot of filmmaker friends and we'd make shorts and stuff. So yeah, that's how, that's how that started. And my prize was a year at SoTV and I stayed for five. So did you find the industry very welcoming then? Because it sounds like you feel you weren't quite who everyone was looking for, so... Were you yeah. welcome with open arms? or? I mean, look, Graeme Stewart, who owns SoTV, remains one of my mentors and he's a great friend and he's brilliant and he's always been lovely to me. And there's some really good people in the industry. There's also, especially back then, I mean, I'm much more vocal about who I am now, especially as a storyteller in scripted and not in unscripted. Unscripted, especially comedy, was very sort of Oxbridge-y. 
uh, you know, it was a very sort of white man at the top and they all went to Oxford and or Cambridge and they were all sort of similar and like they used to, I had one job and they thought it was hilarious that I never learned Latin at school. And I was like, Latin? I didn't learn fucking maths, mate. Like, I failed my maths GCSE. With scripted, because it's storytellers and because of what, how, who we're trying to embrace now, um, it's only the, I would say the last six, seven years that I've started going, this is who I am and I'm not going to hide it anymore. For a while, I used to sit there eating hummus pretending to be one of them. Um but yeah, so I, I don't know. Welcome with you know, it was a tough time back then as well. I didn't have, I didn't, I couldn't see any female doing the job that I wanted to do. And even now, when I think of who owns companies, when I think of the top five, they are all white men. So it's you know, it's not easy, but it's easier. And we've got some great people. And we've got some great stand-ups, some some great writers, and some great execs. And I've got a couple of women in this industry that have been amazing to me. But yeah, it wasn't wasn't easy mm, and now you are who you want to be openly are you still eating hummus <laughs> sometimes actually turns out i quite like yeah, it yeah so you are the person. Uh, <laughs> you are the person. i thought i was so posh the first time. i was like mom i'm eating hummus oh, we didn't know what it was growing up like did you uh no i did no. did you i didn't i didn't know like it, anyway when i was hummus. growing up you could only get olive oil in the chemist yeah. And, you know, like cream cheese was on the deli counter. And oh, my God. You get it, you know. I mean, I've never tried, I've genuinely at 38 never tried salmon as well. And I think that's a sign of being a working class knobhead, isn't it? A little bit. Mm, I think so. Yeah, it's not who I want to be necessarily. I, I, I do have a bit of a bug that I never went to uni and stuff like that. I'm waiting to become really successful that they gave me one of those honorary ones. Oh, yeah. That's what I want. So if anyone's, if Northampton Uni are listening... I will take one. Um, but yeah, it's not who I wanted to be. It's just, I've started just being a bit more authentic and mm-hmm. just like going, oh, do you know what? It's exhausting trying to not be someone, trying to be someone else. Mm. Well, you can say it now, can't you? I mean, I've said before in this, uh, you know, I had to pretend to be middle class for you know most of my career, you know, yeah. because it wasn't possible to not be. It was just, you, you know, yeah. it just wasn't possible. Especially at Beeb. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my yeah, God. Absolutely. And uh yeah, so it's just a bit more recognised now, isn't it? That, that yeah, acceptable. Class was a word you couldn't say for years and years and, and years. Also, it makes perfect sense that we should go to the people of the communities that we want to tell stories to. Like, of course, it makes perfect sense. And I think with not comedy entertainment, but I think in entertainment, they did that and they did it very well. They started getting casting producers and talent who uh, had Geordie accents and Liverpool, Liverpoolians. And they were like, oh, they can talk to the contributors much better than we can. And it worked. And as a result, we had 10, 15 years of amazing entertainment in this industry, in this country, like the, the kings of entertainment. And it's because we let you know, people talk to, you know, we, we did that sort of diversity thing. And I think it, I think it is happening more and more in scripted. Um, you know, the days of, I always say to my writers, it matters who's telling the story. I don't want to read like this story about, uh, you know, this family in Northumberland and da, da, da. where are you from? Oh, I'm from Kensington. Like, no, that doesn't work anymore. I think the old days of getting the posh educated white guy to tell the story it, that doesn't cut it anymore authenticity matters and i think that should be across the board yeah hallelujah so just um for people who don't know could you could you just explain exactly what producing involves as a job nothing uh no it's basically the glue so it's like you've got 
a writer with a vision. You, every, everyone, you've got a writer with a vision. And obviously in America, it's more of a showrunner. So they're sort of like a lead writer. Over here, you'll have a writer that's pitched a pilot and they get picked up for six episodes. The writer will write all them. The producer will come on board. And I, I, I see myself as a facilitator, right? Let me grab your vision and, and implement that throughout the, all the HODs. Making sure that we've got the right director, costume, art, everything. And then it's about communication and leading a team that everyone works together nicely on the same page with the same vision in mind. Um, And then there's some other boring stuff. Do do you know what? I had this chat the other day. In the UK, it's probably one of the most creative positions. Um, But if you're a producer in America, you're like a line producer. You're, You're dealing with budgets and clearance. So over here, it's like the showrunner in America, is the producer-writer here. Okay. So when people are like, oh, oh, you know, I want to be a showrunner, I don't want to get rid of our setup because I do that creative job with a writer and there's two of us and or, or more sometimes. Um, so it's very creative for me and I'm not very good at the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I did a budget the other day for someone, rubbish at it. I'm not, you know, I, my, my brain is coming up with ideas and like, what if the character did this? And what if that person did that? And what if that person was in that situation? And that's how my brain works. So I really enjoy being with writers. But saying that, there's so many different types of producers. There are people that come in, get the job done, deliver it on budget, get out and leave, you know, create decisions mm. to other people. Yeah, not everyone really enjoys developing with writers, do they? No. I mean, it's you sound like you're absolutely that person. Yeah. Who you would want to develop it from scratch with a writer. And I think writers enjoy working with me because it's like yeah. they're no longer alone. You know, yeah. they're, they're, it's a very lonely process. With me, it's very collaborative. And then, you know, and there's a, I've got a bit of process of how I do stuff. That's what I really like doing. But I like executing what we've done as well. So the dream for me is that I'm on it early do- early doors, mm-hmm. picking up the pilot or picking up the idea and then making it into something and then seeing it through. But that doesn't always happen because we're in a freelance world, you know. And you mentioned the, your, you have a process there. Yeah, because I've just finished an American show, Mm -hmm. which is the writer's room set up. So a showrunner, eight other writers, episode each, showrunner takes two. And due to that process, they're very plot driven and they will deliver a beat sheet, which is like a 20 page final draft script almost with everything bar script, with anything at bar language. So it will say interior kitchen, who's in the scene, what happens in the scene verbatim in each single scene, but it doesn't have the dialogue. So when the, so we all agree, well, this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens this, and we break the story together. And then one of the writers goes off and does the dialogue. And it's a really clever process. And they can do it because they've got a team and they, so they crack the story together. In the UK, it's usually just one person, but I find if we, t- if after we do a lot of character work and a lot of overarching where the series goes work, and it's time in to, to crack a pilot, I take it to that beat like we did in, for the American show, and I find it's a really good process. And it just, because, you know, especially a writer on their own, it can be like a cobweb. They get, they get going, they don't really know where it's going, and then it gets tangled, and then they don't know what's working, what's not working. And it, with this, it's like, before you write a single bit of, you know, um, speech. Let's let's work out exactly what happens and when it happens in what order. And then we've I've done this a couple of times, and both times the scripts come back, and I've gone, great. Should we get it out? Like, there's no long notes and picking it apart. So I shouldn't give my game away. That is my secret recipe. 
Do well, not steal it. I think a lot it. of team written shows are like that, aren't they? They are, yeah. It's, and it's just going, we'll, we'll be our own little mini team. Yeah. I mean, I've done a lot of, in the past, a lot of children's comedy. Yeah. And that was always done in exactly that way, really. Yeah, they do, don't they? Yeah, yeah. they do. And um, and things like My Family was, yeah. was done like Proper that. Proper sitcoms, yeah. that, you know, those especially those five gags a page, lot happens, you know. Yeah, that. I mean, same. I think, yeah, that one was. I mean, as, as you said, a lot of the others were the traditional old-fashioned, you've got your writer or your pair of writers and they write all six and it's very yeah. much their baby. But, you know, we have had team-written shows in this, in this country, but not as many and it's not the norm like it is in the states is it no well they haven't got the money for it and then i also think that um a lot of the writers i work with because i'm not a big company that can pay options and have 50 options out there i tend to do a lot of heavy lifting early on because i'm dealing with writers that may be unsigned or they haven't had their first series greenlit or they need a bit more hand-holding or they want a bit more hand-holding because they want it to be more collaborative um, so yeah, that's the, I've got about 15 things on my slate at the moment. Some of them are with other companies, some are at broadcasters, uh, waiting for decisions. Um, but yeah, it tends to be, I'll do the heavy lifting with you early doors. Let's really shape this together. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be a soundboard and anyone that works with me will tell you my WhatsApp is like, we're on, we're talking to each other 24 seven. Um, you know, it's, Yeah. Sound like some very lucky writers getting yeah. lots of support. Well, they're not getting paid, so <laughs> that's the longer the long game is to get them all made. But yeah, there's um, that's all I can offer, you know, until I can go here. Although I don't think options are worth fuck all anyway. Like I know so a friend of mine got an option the other day, fifteen hundred quid for an eighteen month option. That company can just sit on that, and that idea goes nowhere for eighteen months. I don't think they want to. But 1,500 quid is not going to fix anything. It's not even going to pay your rent for a month. The writers, you know, they feel like there's, I mean, I can speak from experience with this. You feel like there's a bit of commitment and a bit of validity to something, don't you? That's what you're looking for. You're looking for someone to go, I commit to this, here's a bit of money. Obviously, it'd be great if it were more money. But there's something about that, someone's willing to pay me something that makes it feel like a real job, a real, you know, and the production company is really committing something to it. Absolutely. And if I had that, if I was in that position, I would absolutely do that, but I'm not. So I, I tend to do shopping agreements. Like, leave this with me for six months and see what we can do. Yeah. Um, but really, I mean, I'm giving up a lot of time for no money. I'm not at a staff yeah. job. No one's paying my wages. Yeah. I always think it's if you're not getting paid and the writer's not getting paid, that's fine. Yeah. It's when you go to a production company where everyone else is getting paid. You're on a salary. And strangely, you're yeah. not getting paid. That yeah. doesn't feel so good. No, that's exactly, that is the rule of thumb. It, yeah, Don't be sure. the only one not paying their rent. So you produced the brilliant BBC show, um, Dreaming Whilst Black, mm-hmm. which began as a, as a web series, I think, didn't it? It did, not with me, but it did, yeah. So how did you become involved with it? I, I know Sarah Santi, the commissioner at the time at the BBC, and she put my name forward, she suggested me for it. There was someone on it, but the chemistry wasn't right between the people. Um, so she left quite early on. And then I looked at it and, you know, I've got lots of opinions and I sat down with Johnny and Ali and I said, you know, I think this, I think that, I think this. And I disagreed with some of the previous decisions and we, you know, we got to a place, we worked really well together. I really enjoyed working with both of them. They're really smart, clever, lovely friends now for life. Yeah, it was a really special show. Really, really hard work. 
Like it nearly killed me, I think. I got two <laughs> slip discs on the shoot. So in the edit, I was literally lying on my back going, what if you just doing? want to pull out of that scene a little bit quicker. Yeah, it was mad. Just because the cold, I've had oh, kids right. and it just froze. I don't know why I got slip discs. Having children and being out in the cold, I think. We shot in the height of COVID. So it was quite nice being able to drive everywhere in London under 20 minutes. <laughs> that was enjoyable. So that but really must have been difficult then because all the COVID regulations to deal with. Everything. Oh, nightmare. Yeah, and quite strict then, you know. Well, it was really strict. It was really strict. Really yeah. st- stupid strict. But yeah, it was a really tough show to make, but it was made with a lot of love. And again, very clear vision. Mm. They knew what they wanted, you know. Um, and it was just about making sure that everyone else knew what Ajani wanted. He's very... You know, he very much led that entire creative process and I support him forever. And that show deals with like the difficulties faced by writers who are not from privileged backgrounds trying to break into the industry. Um, and uh, Majali's character struggles to support himself financially in a world where instant availability, free work appears to be the norm. Is that how you see TV and film industries in, in reality? Well, look, there's sort of laws and stuff now, isn't there, about... Um, doing work experience and how many hours and stuff. But the reality is I'm 20 years into this industry and still doing it, Mm. you know, and I I get it in one way that we're all very lucky to be able to use our imaginations for a living. And, you know, like I'm not sort of entitled, but it cause it's tough and it it will always favor people who can cover their asses for a few quiet months or, you know, I, I do the most ludicrous stuff when I'm not working. Like at the moment, TV is very quiet. The commissioning's been quiet in the UK and obviously we've lost all our US work, which was actually holding up our industry c- quite considerably, uh, as it turns out. And obviously my last show was for a US network. Um, so I'm not working. I've been driving food. I've, I, I book celebs for shows, which is like a little sk- life skill that no one knows I do, that I still do on the side. I'm quite resilient um, and I'm a hustler and I still have that working class mentality. Well, I could be at Aldi, which I considered actually at one point. It's not as well paid as you thought. I thought it was like the highest well paid. But I love Aldi. I was like, I could do that. So the, but, you know, not everyone is built in the same way. Not everyone has that um, that energy to, to keep doing that. And I'm a bit of a weirdo in the sense that I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist. I think these stories are so good they're going to get picked up. I had a massive rejection today. With like a massive, it's been six months coming and it's, it, yeah, it's really tough and you have to wake up on Monday and go, right, what are we doing now? You know, and it's a really tough industry. So it absolutely is. And I think it, I think it's harder on people that don't have a massive support as well, or that can just t- take off some months to, you know, find themselves or whatever. Well, sorry you had that massive rejection. Oh, and fine. great that you're here and, you know, getting so much love from us. There we go. Hey. Yeah. And also, um, good old It's a Sin. Uh, you know, that's our sort of like little light, isn't it? It got rejected so many times. Yeah. So with me and my agent go like, oh, we'll just it's us in it. That's our little thing. <laughs> we'll it's us in it. One day. But you know what? I love that you say like that you've done some delivery driving and that you, you know, you've done your, your talent casting thing. Because I feel like five years ago, producers in your position would not say that stuff because they, they don't would now. Well, I mean, Everyone's they bloody lying. should. Do you know what I mean? They should tell the truth. That's I worked I at Facebook during COVID. I was casting real people on... I've done the weirdest jobs. And I have, like, several CVs. I've got... Last year, I did an advert for a football company, a football a football team and for one of their brands. 
I'll do that doesn't go on my CV. That's not my IMDb. My agent doesn't promote that. It's really tough, and I've I can't like not have a month where I don't earn money. I've got two kids. But that's so great that you know that's the reality of the situation is, and you're acknowledging that. Yeah. Rather than saying, "Oh, I'm so successful, I don't need to do anything," and it, there's that narrative of of like unalloyed success. I think we've had in our industry. Oh, it's awful. You can't admit that anything's going wrong that you haven't got a job that you're you know you're not making it financially because of the shame of it and that will pull down your career and because we're all around we're surrounded by staffers as well you know who really don't get it they're like oh is it quiet they don't fucking know and um i know because i've been on cruise but i've been on the crew producing back to back for a few years so all my friends are crew and i've got ad's ringing me up and i've got people saying it's fucking really quiet and a lot of mental health problems as well at the minute a lot of people are really really struggling and i it pisses me off that everyone's a bit quiet about it during so i went to see sarah santi at uk tv a couple of months ago and she went oh your tweet is doing the rounds around the office and it was the night of the BAFTAs, and I was watching it. To go, I was a bit resentful, probably, but I was going, "Oh, look, there's all there's so and so, yeah, there's so and so, there's so and so," and I felt like, "But we're in a, we're, we're, we're you know, oh, sorry, we're we're in a real touching cloth position." And this was at the start when it wasn't even announced that people weren't commissioning, so but we could sense it, and we had the American stuff on halt, and I just so I tweeted something like. It's lovely to see all our friends at the BAFTAs, but can we not not forget that people's livelihoods are, are crushing at the moment? And it's just got worse since that point. So, yeah, it's a bit strange. I know the Edinburgh Festival apparently was all about that, but people like me didn't have two and a half grand to go to the Edinburgh Festival. We don't even have a thousand, whatever it is, to to buy broadcast magazine so we can read what they said at the festival. Broadcast magazine is so expensive. It's ridiculous. It's madness. Yeah. yeah. So, so you know, of course it's stacked up against a certain type. Yeah. So you just have to work even harder. I think it's really refreshing to hear it as well because as an actor as well, you you know, no one wants to talk about their their side hustles. No. And it's just, it has to be a thing these days. I think it's like, unless you're, I know. unless you're mega rich, you have to have another job. You just have to. Are you kind of have, I, I, I think the, oh, <laughs> when I was getting married, me and my husband just, we kept having this weird time where we kept saying, own it, just own it. Like it was just in our like, pre-wedding tense arguments but it's that isn't it it's it's just if everyone can just own it and just be very honest but people are are painfully dishonest I think but no I can't um I can't preach this and not do it myself so yeah wow respect thanks so in terms of people in the industry generally um do you feel like the number of people from diverse backgrounds has significantly improved at all since you first started in the industry or not really uh I mean snapshot looking at it then yes um but yeah it has it has got better there's no denying that you know there's no denying it's got better it's where is it getting better and when and when is it where was the starting point when is it where is it going to filter up Mm. you know so yeah i know these things you can't just go well you're going to be the head of this i know that you know there is a process and i think there's some really good people trying to make good things happen um but it it is a the whole way of commissioning and funding shows and how you you know get paid on deliveries it's set up to to not be easy so it that that is going to attract people that can take that risk and 
you know, class to me, money and class go hand in hand. If you grew up with no money, you don't have that easy come, easy go approach to it. If you didn't know when you were doing a food run or when your mum was doing a food run, you don't have that it's going to be okay attitude. So you're going to be less likely to take risks. So it's, it's systematic, isn't it? I think we've got a lot of work to do, but you just keep doing it. So what do you think of the online route for comedy writers? Um, I noticed that, you know, as you said, Dreaming Whilst Black started as a web series. Lots of shows by black and working class writers seem to start online now. Do you think that's a good thing? Uh, is it is that a creative choice or do you think it's because other doors are closed? I think doing a sort of a, sort of a, a proper filmed thing, is it was really hard for Ajani. It was really hard for all of them. They were at uni. There was three creators on that show. And they were at film school together and they borrowed and they begged money and they used kit and they had favours. And the reason why Johnny was Quavino is because they couldn't find an actor to play him. So he's a director. Like, Johnny's a film director. A very good one, actually, as well. So uh, I get it. I get why people do it. But it wasn't easier. He was still, he was still making a full-blown production with no money, no facilities, no everything. I think um, those that can putting yourself in front of the screen and doing the TikTok and stuff and punching up ideas and practicing. I mean, I use Twitter sometimes as a place to practice being funny or like Instagram. Like I'll have a, I, I have a lot of ideas that I wouldn't do. Like I, I could I could smash TikTok if I wanted to be on it, but I don't know who wants to watch me and I don't want to do it. But sometimes, so I think using whatever you can to get your voice out there is absolutely good, but it's I don't think any of it's easy. Although saying that, I have cast two people that I found funny on TikTok. So, you know, if, if, if you know, and there's some, I work with a writer who I love and we're just on our second project together and I liked her on, t- on Twitter. She's really, really funny on Twitter and that's how that came about. So I think you just have to be what you are presenting and whatever means that is, you know, and like I see a lot of people that go, I want to be a director and I go, well, put everything into making a short film and getting it out there then because until you've got something, until you're doing it, you're not doing it. So, but, you know, it's very, very tough. And I know people's fears of doing it and stuff, but you, it, it, this, it's a whole industry based on rejection. So you might as well start getting rejected early. Yeah. I suppose the other argument is it's like broadcasters outsourcing all their development to creatives because they're, you know, basically doing the development. Well, yes, yeah, the, the streamer choice. approach, yeah. isn't it? Come with a script to the 30-page Bible. Mm. Uh, it's not great. And I'm part of that because... I've got my slate because I'm a nobody. I've got a couple of people, bigger people that I'm going to co-pro with, I think to certain channels that will expect it. Um, but because I'm a nobody and the writer may be unsigned or they're fairly new or whatever, and, or it's a, a bit of an out there idea. I've said, we're going to have to write it. I don't think anyone's going to go here. 10 grand, write the script. So let's do it together. And I don't like doing that. I don't like asking people to do stuff for nothing. But I have to, we all have to, and I think um, at least they're not going to buy something they don't get because it's going to be on the page. So you have a small label called Gobby Girl Productions with a slate of TV shows mainly from underrepresented writers. Can you tell us a bit more about that and why you started it? Well, for starters, a few years ago, quite a few, about seven years ago, I went to a party. Do you remember when Jim Davison was doing the Edinburgh Festival? Do you know this story? I, I actually you read it, it today. Did you? It. Yeah, I did. So <laughs> Jim Davison had just done Big Brother and he'd won it maybe a year before. And I was going to Casey Bachelor's, remember her? 30th, she's a lovely girl. Casey Bachelor's 30th birthday with my mate Russell Kane. 
And Jim Davison was there, and I thought, oh my God, he's doing the Edinburgh Festival, I need to go and talk to him. And he was rude and dismissive, and I thought, but he can't not like me, he doesn't know who I am. So I'm pounding the free drinks at Soho Sanctum, probably trying to stuff my stomach on a boulevard, and I keep going back to him, and he gets worse and worse and worse. And by the end of it, I felt like a little piece of shit on his shoe. And I, I was a bit upset, I was like, I don't understand why this... 50-odd-year-old bloke just doesn't like me. And he was going to so what, what does a comedy producer do? And I was like, well, I'm surprised you've been in the industry not that long and no one's told you, Jim. Um, and so I left that night and I was a little bit upset, probably a bit drunk. And um, I told my husband and he said, no shit, Gina, he's just tweeted about you. And I was like, what? So I went on his Twitter account and he put, great, I had a right hoot at Casey Bachelor's party, but there's always one gobby woman, isn't there? So at the time, I was, again, sort of just flexing, being funny. I was writing for the Huffington Post. A friend of mine was an editor, and she went, you're quite funny, you should write on the blogs and whatever. And I mostly did it to get free spas, by the way, and I had a lovely time. I went to lots of spas and review them on Huffington Post. So I wrote a thing saying, Jim Davison called me a gobby woman, and then my sort of punchline at the end was that I got him mistaken with the bullseye presenter, Jim Owen. Is it Jim Owen? Jim Bowen. 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 Oh, yeah. You know, so that was sort of my punchline. I did a photo, and then Jim saw the article. And went, that was actually really funny, and like shared it again. So when it comes, so I always had for tax purposes a production company that when I was in Thailand, my accountant said, "What do you want to call it?" I said, "Nit Noi," because it means little bit. So it was called Nit Noi Production. Harry Hill came out with a production company called Knit Productions. And then I wanted to sort of rebrand. And then my husband said, why don't you call yourself Gobby Woman? Like what Jim called you. And I said, well, what about Gobby Girl? And that's how that came about. People seem to really like the name. So it's I really hope I can... It's a great, great name. great name, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm, and also it came as having children, especially girls, made me go, no, I'm going to be a girl and Gobby and net loud and opinionated. I sort of, this is part of my, the last five, six years sort of embracing the things that I was embarrassed and shy about. So I think that sort of just puts it on the tin a little bit. Yeah, and also it gives you a great idea of, oh, I'm going to go to that production company. You remember it straight away and you get an idea of the sort of things that you might do. Yeah, a lot of women, unsurprisingly, um, out of the 15 projects, probably 10 of them are female writers. I don't know what's ever going to happen. I'm not going for investment or anything yet. I'm trying to get some sort of commission, something off the ground. It looks like I potentially might have a couple of things that are floating around. So hopefully... I can do something and then people can people go, oh, well, it's just going to be fine with a million pounds and then they'll give me a million pounds and we'll be on our way. I do, when I do look up, aside Sharon Horgan's Merman, there aren't many female-owned production companies doing comedy, no. uh, really. Uh, you know, there's some great women out there with companies that, you know, maybe have just had one commission or none. Um, My, and lots think- more drama, you know, women oh, yeah. with drama production companies. Big but, ones, yeah. yeah and that's not to say they're, all, they're not out there. I just, you know, and I also think I've got really good taste. So I just think... No, well, I say it myself. To, I'll say it myself. <laughs> Excellent taste. So, yeah, hopefully, I don't necessarily want to own a printer or hire HR. So CoPro might be the sort of way for us. But I just want to... So can you tell us a bit more about your experience as one of the first cohort of BAFTA Elevate producers? And that's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, I can BAFTA barely Elevate say it. producers. Um, I didn't really know what it was, if I'm honest. I think I, I think I knew about the BAFTA breakthrough. BAFTA to me was always that wall of something that wasn't obtainable. Mm. And then somebody said, oh, you should do this. And I'd done the women in film and TV, which is excellent, by the way. You should, everyone should do it. Like, it's so good. 
And that was a year and that was over COVID. So we all did it on Zoom and we all got so much out of it. We're still on a WhatsApp group now and some amazing women on that cohort. So when I saw the BAFTA thing, a part of me was a bit like, oh, am I going to do another thing? You know what I mean? Like the, the person that's constantly doing the courses. Yeah. But it's BAFTA, you know. So I did a application and um, I really didn't think I was going to get in at all. You know, I didn't even get is into it, BAFTA is it Connect. A long process? What? Do you remember BAFTA Connect? Yeah. Like the, I didn't even get in on that. I got a rejection from that, and then two months later, I got onto BAFTA Elevate. I was like, "What the?" Um, is a BAFTA Connect a sort of like a, a two thousand people from the industry, like a, like a semi membership, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I didn't get in on that, and then I got on BAFTA Elevate. So who knows? You know what I mean? But it's really good. It's amazing. With they, they, maybe two sessions a month for two years. Um, and anything from, we'll have film producers, TV producers, channels. We went in and did a big ITV day. I think we're going to probably do a BBC day. Like there, the first year is about, uh, I've got a big session next week with Harbottle and Lewis, the legal firm. And that's fascinating. Like I'm, I'm, I, I like all that stuff. Mm. Like, well, you know, you spoke about this person in a film. Do you need life rights and all, you know, that sort of stuff. But it's really brilliant. It's, we're a wide range of producers from lots of different backgrounds in different areas and different skill sets. So it, and that could be tough because we're all producers, which is quite a solo job. So that is, you know, there's a bit of navigating that. But they're really good people and the courses are really good and they really care. You know, BAFTA really, they really want to shake things up. They really want, they want us all to be a bit disruptory. It's not a word, but... Yeah, so it's really good. So it's, yeah, the first year Mm. I'm going, now I've just gone into my second year and I think it's going to be like, they're going to host a party, have industry. I think the second year is a bit more like, let's put you back out there and... Event type stuff. Yeah, Mm. I don't know, but very nice. And I've got loads to learn and I always will do. So I'm always up for learning it. But all these things are, you know, they're great, aren't they? In that they they mark you out as someone who somebody else thinks is great. Yeah, and that's what we need in our industry, isn't it? For for women to get those that seal of approval from people in Absolutely, order to get yeah. taken seriously. Yeah. Also, it's just like like yesterday I did a tweet where I was like, I just want to announce that I've got nothing to announce, and my life, you know, <laughs> because everyone was like, I just want to announce that like. Oh, this is my twelfth film that's coming out in the cinema. I was like, oh. <laughs> so I just like I've got nothing, um, but yeah, th- it gives people something, something to post on LinkedIn, a, a badge of acceptance. Well, from it's an like industry. being on Pilot Club. You know, we you know we throw a little light on writers who no one's heard of before. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And suddenly everyone's tweeting about them because yeah. you know they've been working with us or whatever. So it, it, you've just got as a woman, you've got to grab all of that. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, and part of the women in film and TV course was a lot was it like how you PR yourself. Like we learned how to do our LinkedIn pages. We learned how to network. And uh, Tracy Forsyth, by the way, who, I just get her on everything. She's amazing. She's like a life coach and a human coach to be for everything. But she's amazing. She was on the committee for women, film and TV. And she she does like women coaching. And one of her answers to nearly everything is, "Why, if not you, then who? And yeah. it, you know, like the statistic about what women apply for like, oh, I don't hit every criteria, so I can't apply for that job. Whereas men will go, I hit 80%. I'm going to throw in an application. Like, she's got all the statistics. It's shocking. So whatever you say, she goes, well, if not you, then who? And you're like, oh, damn it. All right. And where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? Old. Um, 10 years. I'll be 48 in 10 years. Um, I would like to have tried to get the film stuff off the ground and have, you know, if I can do it once or twice, then people are going to give me money. 
So that can be a, a thing. Like, I think we need a little mini studio set up in the UK. Um, and just having a, a successful production company that people really enjoy working with us, writing with us. Yeah. I didn't realise I wanted a production company. And it was only through the BAFTA stuff that I started going, I'm not good with having bosses. Shock. I mean, I'm sure you've got that by now. But I'm not very good. I, I struggle with um, authority in every aspect of my life. So I, yeah, I think if I can sort of avoid having a boss would be great. I've got a few bosses well, that go And you'll be the boss. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not even bothered about that sort of role, you know. I just want to tell good stories and have a laugh. We're, we, you know, we're making comedy. Like, cheer up. No one's going to die. No, well, you know, not in real life, hopefully. But, yeah, so I don't know. I just want to be still working, having fun. I get really down if I'm not working. To the point that I'm mentoring, like, twice as many people at the moment. Because it's just like, I need stuff to do when it's quiet. Well, wherever you are in 10 years' time, you will definitely still be in the Female Pilot Club. Yay! Because you are a lifetime member. And now I skydive out the plane. Yes. (laughs) And it is a very exclusive club, as you know. We don't just let anyone in. No, we let literally everyone in. (laughs) Everyone can get in. Everyone can get in. But what other great women of comedy would you like to nominate for membership? So it can be a writer, producer, performer or stand-up from the history of comedy whose only crime was a lumpy jumper. Oh, do you know what? I'm going to pass it on to a new producer. Her name's Lauren Huggins. She's a good friend of mine and she's worked um, as sort of coordinator and script coordinator for many, many years. And she's just got her first producer job and she's brilliant. So let's bring her in. Big shout out to Lauren. Well, that sound means it's time for us to nip to the biffy, pull up our blackouts and strap on for landing. Right, but we'll be back soon to take another intrepid female out of her comfort zone and up, up amongst all the stars of the comedy fundament. Firmament, you meant. I know what I mean. <laughs> Thanks to our guest, Gina Lyons, and goodbye from Female Pilot Club. Goodbye. Oh, was I meant to? Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Why not follow us at Female Pilot Club on Twitter and Insta? The podcast was created and produced by Kay Stonham and Emily Chase. It was edited and technically produced by Adam Bromley, with music composed by Tim Sutton. If you enjoyed the show, please do like, subscribe, share and review. Until next time, up, up and away! Shoot.